Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host, Jeff, as always. Today, we have on filmmaker and prop master Stan Gilbert. Stan has done a ton of movies and TV. He has great insight regarding props, art design, and weapons work in movies. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast, and today we have Stan Gilbert on the show. Stan has worked on over 100 movies and TV shows as a prop master, an armorer. Uh, He's worked in special effects. Stan's done a little bit of everything, which is, you know, one of the things Andrew and I like to talk about is that multi-hat wearing filmmaker, which definitely Stan is. And, you know, that's what makes him so valuable. Um, He's worked in both TV and movies, and his credits include Boyhood, Office Space, The Expendables, Chocolate Lizards, and we actually just had uh, Mark Bristol on the show talking about that film. So small world, I suppose. Uh, So anyway, uh, Stan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So one of the things we always start with when we're talking to our guests is, you know, how they got inspired to get involved in the the world of film and storytelling. So I'm I'm curious, how did that happen for you? <laughs> well, um, it's a story did not come from an artistic place. It came from a place of need. I was uh, 30 years old and basically I needed a job. I wasn't really qualified to do very much, uh, but I had a friend that had introduced me to a woman uh, a little while back um, that was in the motion picture business. She was a prop master, and I ended up calling her up and saying, hey, you want to come work for you? And she tried to talk me out of it, uh, <laughs> saying what a, what a horrible business it is. Um, and uh, I uh, insisted, and she said, okay, meet me uh, you know, at such, and such a location, which happened to be a block away from my house in Santa Monica, and they were shooting... But that's what the location for the day was um, at an old appliance store um, in Santa Monica. And it was um, James Woods and John Lithgow uh, in a uh, TV movie called The Boys. Not not the current version of The Boys. Right, right. Yeah. So this is way back in the, whenever I started, back in the 90s. And did she pull you on like as an assistant or how did yeah, that? Yeah, she just, yeah, had me come in. I was the third. And... Um, and, and did you know anything at that point or did you just kind of jump in, you know, feet first? I knew absolutely nothing about <laughs> not not a thing. I had never had any interest in it, didn't know anything about it. But by the middle of that show, she had fired her first assistant and made me the first assistant. And uh, I learned, you know, by trial, trial on fire. I took to it because I'm uh, very organized. And I have very good memory of where things are, you know, on the prop truck. That's a, that's a really big thing is to be able to find stuff when you need it. So, um, I was able to, uh, fix things and make things and find things on the truck. And then that's a big, uh, it's a big asset, uh, for a, a prop master to have somebody that's able to do various kinds of things. Um, so it's not just an artistic thing, but it's a mechanical thing and, there's a lot of aspects to the to the job. So besides that initial job that you just explained, was there a pivotal moment in your career that you would consider your big break or that moment you knew, you know, I'm pretty good at this. I could do this as a career. Well, um, you know, I did, I don't know, maybe five, six movies with, uh, with Sherry as her assistant. We travel all over the United States and, you know, I just got better and better at it and then started really feeling the artistic 
part of it and realizing the impact that we have on a, you know, that the prop department has on a, a movie set, just like every, every department's important. And it's really easy to spot the weak link on a, on a production, uh, which is why I think they set it up like that. So the prop department is the prop department set deck is set deck and um, costume is costume. You always know who didn't do what they were supposed to do. Like I said, I just kind of got better and better uh, and broadened my scope of stuff that I was learning and and becoming more artistic at it um, because that wasn't really my forte. But you kind of you kind of have to be artistic and uh, and good with people. Well, I'm 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 curious because um, you know obviously that first step took you into a long career. You've done movies and TV, and you know you've done an impressive number of of projects. I guess my question is, when you're working on TV versus say a miniseries or a made for TV movie or a feature, of those three uh, types of of mediums, is there one you prefer, or or do you do you even approach? them differently because of you know time and demand and money how does that work well you know um back back in the old days <laughs> i don't want to say i don't want to date myself too much but um you know a tv was only you know a big tv was 19 inches so you know the joke was well they're never gonna see that this <laughs> big so you know who cares <laughs> um so i mean that really was the directive um for crew people that didn't really get it so you know things have evolved you know greatly to you know to working on a netflix you know or apple tv thing now um is not the same as working on a a cbs movie of the week in you know in in 1998 um so movie of the weeks you know were uh, bread and butter i used to do those back to back to back and you know it was a very abbreviated form of uh of the art you know tv in those days um was a a very abbreviated shot list you know you went in and you did a uh your master your wide shot and then you did you know a couple of coverage shots and you moved on to the next thing um so there really is not a lot of room for detail in the old days of, of doing tv but now the you know the the formats have changed and the uh, formula has changed of how to make movies and how to, um, and uh, you know, the, the shows of today, the TV stuff of today, I think um, uh, rises, you know, to the quality level of a lot of, you know, the big feature films. Um, and the budgets are big as well. I mean, I've worked on, you know, some Netflix things that are just huge. So I, I'm curious, you know, as, and, you know, as you grow as a prop master and you're doing all this work, do you go out and rent everything or do you actually own a lot of this stuff that, you know, I mean, do you own things that, you know, are kind of the go-to props that come up a lot? How does, how does that work? Yes, I own, (laughs) I'm a professional hoarder. (laughs) That's probably a good trait for a prop master. (laughs) It is, you know, a proper prop master, it's all about stuff. If you ain't got stuff, you're not doing it. In the prop department, we help tell the story, right? Um, just like most departments, help tell the story in, in in their own way. So, the actors, they want their props to uh, to help them, not to distract them, not to 
to, to be a benefit. But, you know, there's there's different kinds of actors, um, which I probably don't have to tell you guys. Um, but some actors are really into their props and some could care less. So you go up to them and you go, oh, here's your here's your briefcase for this scene. And they're like, no, nah, I don't want that. No, nah, I don't I don't want that. Or, you know, here's here's your pistol for the scene. No, nah, I don't need it. I don't need it. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, either you got to let that roll the way it is or you kind of look at the first AD or the director and go, yeah, he didn't want his stuff. Uh, and then they'll say, well, he's got to have his stuff. Or they'll go, okay, fine, whatever. Whatever he wants. You know, it depends how big the actor is. <laughs> Are there any ever any moments in production or have you ever experienced a moment where an actor will come to you requesting a certain prop that's not in the script, but what they feel is right for their character and either luckily you have it or you're, you have to think on your feet real fast? Yes. Um, that's a very common occurrence, actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, the actors are trying to develop their character. Uh, they do speak go, uh, their character uh, through their props very often. Um, so, yes, there's always requests. And even at this, you know, there's pre-production, you know, so we meet with the actors and we do a show and tell of, you know, watches and rings and uh, whatever. It, 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 and then important props or scripted props for whatever type of movie it is. And then they go, you know, um, I think that my character would be wearing cufflinks or certain kind of a, you know, a school ring or, you know, all kinds of things that they want for their character development. And it's interesting. We either have time to get it or we don't have time to get it. So uh, that's the thing of having a lot of stuff on the truck. So you have to learn to read between the lines of the script. Um, anybody can read a script and highlight all the prop looking things and produce those props. And then, so to me, you've done only half of your job. The other part of the job is to anticipate the needs of the actors and, and the director and even, you know, other departments of, uh, of what you can do to, to make it better. Um, to elevate things. So again, anybody can just pick the props out of a script, you know, and, and have them ready and do a show and tell with the director and go, here's here's what I got. And, you know, then that'll be fine. But you haven't really elevated things. So going back to what Jeff had referenced earlier in a question about different kinds of mediums, uh, what are the pros and cons of working on a TV miniseries over a big budget blockbuster for the big screen? Do you have a preference? Do you prefer one over the other? Having worked on a few, you know, giant movies, you know, Pearl Harbor, Expendables and, and things like that, you know, it's really interesting, you know, to watch, you know, $200 million, you know, go on to a movie screen. And it's, it's, it's very interesting to watch that process. And I think it's an important learning bit to, to have done that, but I would prefer to not, and I, I and I didn't pursue those kind of big movies for, for my career. I like being in a smaller pond, as it were. Um, so, and a bigger fish in a small pond, as opposed to a small fish in a giant pond. Do you get more um, more creative uh, control in that environment, or does that change? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, I feel like I get a lot more creative input uh, on a smaller project than on a giant project, where they just want to just do your job. Just bring the props to set and, you know, keep your mouth shut on smaller projects. You get to sit with, you know, hang with the director and make suggestions and 
and and things that affect the story, yeah, for uh, sto- the story continuity and I don't know. I think there is a lot more input on smaller projects, um, and and that's what my preference is. So that kind of leads me to my other question. Um, you know, you've worked in art department, you know, props, as an armorer, um, special effects. Any of those you enjoy more than the other? Well, I mean, I love doing special effects. And I'm, and I'm assuming those are practical effects because of your yeah. art background? Exactly. Yes, those are right, always right, right. practical effects. Yes. Um, so I worked as a special effects coordinator, as special effects technician um, on, on a lot of shows. And then I used to kind of do, uh, and then again on smaller shows, I would do some special effects and uh, and props kind of, you know, kind of both at the same time. So sometimes you can do it. Sometimes it's too much, you know, to, to do both jobs right. And then, you know, then there's union rules and things like that as well. Oh, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I do like doing special effects, but props was always, I always ended up back being, being the prop master. You know, the prop master is historically uh, the one who is responsible for weapons on on set. And then I just happened to take it a step further and make it my specialty um, so to become a weapons armorer, you know, a respected weapons armorer, you know, there, uh, that's a, uh, a big challenge, a lot of responsibility, the whole safety thing, and it's got to be done the right way. And you, you know, you have to rule with an iron fist because, you know, when your guns are on set, it's, you know, it's my rules, period. You know, and that's, that's why I really get to, <laughs> I get to be the big shot, um, <laughs> but 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 not so much just really being the big shot, just because you don't want anybody to get hurt, right? Right. And then you know the the recent issues that uh, have arisen, the Alec Baldwin thing on Rust, right. uh, really put a damper in me doing weapons on set. Most companies don't know. Most producers don't want to even shoot blanks anymore. So you've done films both large and small, as we've talked about. I'm curious when you have a low budget, uh, are there any tips or tricks you've used on making it look bigger than what it is to give our listeners more insight into increasing production value on a budget? Can you describe the smoke and mirrors used to make one of the most expensive looking props you provided on a project? Yes. And again, that's a really good question. I always said, you know, anybody can make a hundred million dollar movie you know, stand back and throw money at it. So it, it, the, the the trick is to, you know, make a $10 million movie look like a $100 million movie. Or, you know, it, the, is the smaller the budget, you know, the, the bigger the challenge. So again, one, you got to be into what you're doing. You got to really want to do it and you've got to want to shine and you have to want to put your best foot forward and you have to kind of know what you're doing. I mean, if you haven't, uh, you know, having the experience to know, how to pull some of these these rabbits out of your hat, as it were, you know, is uh, not, not you got to be good at it. Not everybody is that that good at at going the extra mile. So, you know, I get you know taking a a, a, a little stapler, you know, from from office space. Um, yeah, that's one of my big claims to fame is taking a store bought stapler. You know, showing a bunch of them to Mike Judge and having him go, well, I like this one, but I want it to be a little more rounded on top. And and then, you know, 
going to my truck and getting out the Bondo and making it a little more bulbous on top and <laughs> spray painting it red and uh, going, well, here, you know, here's a prototype and have him and the production designer going, yeah, that's great. And then they pick out the exact color red they want. And then I make the, uh, I made the graphics, uh, the swing line graphics, uh, you know, a, um, a vinyl, little teeny vinyl graphics and put the, you know, put those on the staplers. And I made 10 of them, you know, burned five of them and uh, had five new looking ones. Um, so that was a, that ended up being a pretty iconic prop. And that was, you know, you know, a $20 prop, you know, became a pretty iconic and, and, and an important prop to the, to the story, as did all the props on that, you know, learning how to do a lot of that stuff, you know, the, those big Coke bottle eyeglasses that, uh, Milton wears, you know, I had to get an optometrist to make those glasses. And then, uh, also then to make contact lenses to, to back out that much magnification that those lenses had the actor, the actor couldn't see you know the actor couldn't get up and safely walk around i never even thought about that that's that's funny yeah 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 so uh had to do had to you know learn that that was an important thing because you know if you hand an actor a prop and it's if it causes problems on set for whatever reason you know you haven't done your job it's got to be safe and it's got to be the right thing for the for the job I'm glad you brought that up because one of the questions I had was was about exactly what you're talking about. You know, a lot of people, when they think of the prop master, they're thinking, you know, storing the props, having them ready for the day of the shoot, you know, things like that. But oftentimes it involves, you know, hiring people to manufacture the prop or or building something specific. And, you know, I always think of, like you said, the iconic prop of the stapler, um, you know, or like the Maltese Falcon or Ro the sled Rosebud or whatever. Are there other iconic props that you had to really think outside the box of, you know, you, like you said, you're reading, reading the script, but you're reading between the lines and maybe you're seeing something that gives you a chance to create something, I don't know, that you thought, man, I really, really knocked it out of the park on this one. Are there other props like that you had to build? I mean, every, every single job comes with challenges. It's really easy to farm stuff out uh, and get it made by a third party. You know, the prop houses all will make stuff for you, but they charge, first of all, they charge a lot of money and, you know, you have a budget. So as a prop master, you know, you're running a small business basically. So you have labor that you have to consider. Um, you have, you know, expenses of, uh, manufacturing and acquiring props and you have to manage all that. And sometimes you have to go back to a producer and go, look, I, I need more money for such and such thing. Yeah, so so I'd rather make the stuff myself, um, if we you know when I can. I mean, I made stuff for for Hatchet Three. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody ever saw that <laughs> that movie. You know, those are those gore movies. You, know, you got to make everything, and you got to make stuff look like it works. Like you got to make that giant chainsaw turn, um, you know, without it being dangerous. So there's a lot of mechanical effects every single movie had stuff that had to be modified or made you know i just did this movie called the long game which did the um film festival circuit it's um based on a on a book in 1955 uh, mexican-american caddies decide they want to play golf and they're discriminated against in in south texas so all that's all the 1955, you know, period movies are really challenging. 
and I've done lots of them. And this was a little teeny movie that had somehow they got some pretty good characters and they got Dennis Quaid and Jay Hernandez and uh, even Cheech Marin. You know, we had to make a a caged suit for Cheech Marin. He's the he's the guy that would be out on the golf course picking up the golf balls. We you know when they're in the at the driving range. So he had a suit kind of a suit of armor so that he could so when he got hit by the balls that people, you know, were driving on the uh, on the driving range that they would bounce off of his suit of armor. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. I mean, that is funny. Yeah, I mean the the production designer actually made the the first iteration of it and then uh, and uh, and then I had to make it work. <laughs> On the day, you know, so that's when we're out there actually making it. So he didn't get cut on the chicken wire and he'd be able to get it on and off. Cause you know, once you stick somebody in one of these suits, you gotta be able to get it off. They gotta be comfortable. You know, if you have an uncomfortable actor, big or small, again, then you haven't done your job right. Yeah. So that's always a, a challenge. Staying on the, or going back to the indie low budget side of things. What tips have you learned that would help filmmakers with micro budgets increase the production value of their set design? The first and foremost important thing to me is always hire people that are smarter than you. <laughs> so, you know, you never, you can never go wrong. Um, they might not be as experienced in doing props or, you know, have the same insight that I have, um, but um, they they have other skill sets that, that, that help. So the set design, you know, is really, you know, the, the job of the, uh, production designer and the set decorator, but it's still a collaborative art and actually, and, you know, and that's the thing that I like most about, uh, movie making is that you can't do the job without other departments. Everybody is very reliant on, on other departments. Uh, you know, if the costume department's not doing their job well, then, you know, we have, we have components between the two departments that were, that we work together on, just like in set deck. If the set decorator's not doing their job well, you know, then I have to pick up that slack, you know, or the onset dresser that works typically for the, the set deck department. I mean, and that's a, you know, that's a job, I guess I'm getting off into another area here, but there was not even a thing, a position called the onset dresser when I started. The prop department actually helped keep the integrity of the design of the set. And, uh, and just for people who may not know, can you unpack exactly what an onset dresser does? An onset dresser is responsible for maintaining the integrity of the set when the shooting crew arrives. So when we show up on the day that now we're going to start shooting on that set, the set deck people have decorated the set. You know, the set designers have done their design work. And now we're showing up to shoot. The set decorator wants the couch to be where the couch is and the chair. But, you know, then the director comes in and says, well, let's move that there, move that. So the set, the onset dresser will be that person that, that moves all the big stuff. That's the stuff that's not props, the stuff that's uh, integral to the set itself. And we help the, the onset dresser do that. And then the onset dresser helps us with props when they can. So again, it's the collaborative aspect of movie making. And, and that position, the onset dresser didn't exist uh, when I started, you know, until the mid 2000s. Did, did you have uh, 
a, an onset dresser. Um, and it's a pretty important position. They're always looking at the composition of the entire set uh, from the eyes of the of the lens, which is a whole another skill set that you have to kind of develop when you're on set is you got to take into consideration what the camera is seeing, not just what you're looking at from your vantage point, but you have to you have to consider the vantage point of the camera itself and what lens is on a camera and what lens is on B camera. And, you know, looking at if you're fortunate enough to be on a show that has uh, monitors for you to look, look at, but you know, t very small movies don't have monitors typically, and they're shooting with fewer cameras, like one, maybe two, if they're lucky. Um, so everybody really has to be on their game to make a small movie look big, which I guess you asked that question about 20 minutes ago. <laughs> so, uh, how to, so, so it's really, it's, it's like find your team and trust in your team. It sounds like it is. Yeah. The movies that I work on nowadays, you know, typically, you know, five to 15, $20 million movies, you know, what's your, you know, for modest budget movies in the big scheme of things. And yes, I rely on my onset person to be on set and doing their job and, and working with the props that I provided them, you know, uh, to, to go to each actor, you know, for whatever circumstance, uh, that we're dealing with the person on the truck, which is very often the prop master, me, you know, is building the props, polishing the props, doing whatever it takes to, to get them ready for the next scene, essentially. You also work as an armorer, and part of the job is keeping the use of guns as authentic as possible. I know you talked about it a little bit, but I'm curious. Of course, today there are so many digital things you can do with like guns, like muzzle flashes, for example. Um, do you prefer practical or digital, or how do you? Or I'm guessing you prefer practical, but I'm guessing, or I'm wondering how you decide which one is better for a particular film. You know, muzzle flash is only about twenty percent of you know, what happens when you fire a gun. So, you know, you have, if it's a semi-automatic, you have brass coming out. You What you also have is what the actors need to be able to react to. So if you hand a gun, an empty gun or a toy gun to an actor and say, okay, you know, and the director says, well, okay, so shoot that guy over there. What you end up with is an actor that's trying to overcompensate and, and throwing the bullets, you know, like pushing the gun forward and throwing the bullets, essentially, even though there are no bullets, but over acting of what a gun would be doing and then not having any sound cues because the gun's not going bang. So <laughs> it's so it's it's not a matter of my preference. My preference is absolutely, absolutely to shoot guns when it's safe. There are uh, circumstances and it's solely my my decision when the uh, scene is blocked and I can't figure out a way to make that scenario safe to fire the gun the way that the director and the DP want want to do this uh, then I'll say look guys you know um, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to do that in post and you know 20 years ago that was not a thing nowadays it's not a big deal and yes they can put the muzzle flash in is it as good I believe it's not um, I still think even a layman can see muzzle flash that's not, you know, real gun fire. So the real gunfire 
I think adds a whole development, uh, a whole aspect of uh, production value. So uh, production value is a big term um, that we should talk about, that we have actually been talking about. I should have used that term earlier with how good your stuff looks and what what uh, it brings to the whole project. So in, in that case, the actually firing the gun, I think gives a whole better, bigger level of uh, production quality to to the show. Well, you know, we've talked a lot about props and, and production design and, and uh, production value. I want to pivot over to uh, you as a producer. You're actually developing um, some projects now, and, and there's one particular you've been working on. I'm, I'm curious uh, if you can tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I don't know how much you can say or not say, but I'd love to hear about that, how you found the, the project, how you found the property. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, after 33 years of just being a art department dog, it's I think it's time to try to produce a project. So um, I happened to have a friend that had a friend uh, that wrote a book and was trying to, and and then actually had a screenplay as well uh, based on that book and was trying to get a movie made of it. So I read the book and I read the screenplay and, uh, and then I did what's called an option. So I have an option <laughs> Uh, on this project, um, it's called the Road to Eden's Ridge. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting, you know, love story. Uh, you know, uh, based around country music, and um, so there's no gunfire, no explosions. Yeah, I decided I'd like this project. I, I bought the option on it, so I've been developing. You know, we're in, I guess, the stage that's called, uh, yeah, the development stage which I, you know, really never participated in. By the time they want to hire, you know, a, uh, a prop master, a production designer, or whatever it is that, you know, uh, they're asking me to, to do on the project, you know, that yeah, the money's already there. You know, they, they don't call me before they've got actors and, and money in the bank, you know, so I've never really had to deal with this side of things. So it's, it's very challenging, and I did what uh, I didn't know existed, you know, the pitch deck um, aspect of uh, uh, when you're putting a movie together, you know, kind of the, the hors d'oeuvres when you're pitching a show to uh, actors or director or uh, producers, a visual aid, basically, um, for the script. So you want to entice them visually and hope that they're, they are enticed enough to want to read the script. So, um, so this is a big learning curve for me. Um, it's 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 kind of exciting, and it's uh, it's starting to move along. Well, you know, we wish you the best of luck with that project. It sounds exciting as you develop it and it moves along. We'd love to have you back on the show and talk about that process and talk more about developing and producing and um, you know getting a project like that off the ground. When we talk again, hopefully, I'll know a lot more about that process. <laughs> you know, like I said, it's a whole it's a whole different ball game than, than being responsible for just one department, you know, producers and, and directors, you know, they got to look at the big picture, the, the very mm -hmm. big picture. Well, you've kind of come full circle, I suppose, you know, you, you specialize in looking at a specific angle of a, a movie, like the props or the production design. Um, and now you're stepping out at that 10,000 foot view, looking at, okay, here's my movie. I want this to happen and this to happen and this to happen to get it off the ground. So that's exciting. Yeah. It, it it is exciting, 
And then I know you had um, the director, uh, Mark Bristol on. Sure. Uh, uh, from Chocolate Lizards. Um, you know, which was really a really interesting, exciting project because the one of the producers uh, of that show was a prop master. Oh, interesting. Uh, Cohen Wooten. And he, we even worked together, you know, on, on some projects, you know, many, many years ago. So, you know, to get a call from him, you know, he's producing, you know, a, a movie. Uh, but I read the script. The script was really interesting. And then he had some pretty noteworthy, you know, cast uh, attached to it, which was really impressive to get Carrie Ann Moss, Bruce Dern and Thomas Hayden Church and, you know, you know, those people. And, you know, I've done like four other movies with Thomas Hayden Church as an actor and director and, and so on. But uh, I was really, it was really something to see that person, Cohen, the producer, go uh, full circle with his career and, and, and produce this show that where I felt like I really had a lot of input with, with Mark, would listen to my suggestions and either run with it or, or not. But I felt like I had a lot of input um, into that, that show and that my presence uh, was appreciated. So that was good. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, Mark was a great guy. It was fun mm -hmm. having him on the show. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, um, Stan, we appreciate all your insight on props and, and art direction. And and now as you're moving into a producing, uh, the producing stage of your life, just keep us posted on that progress and uh, we'll circle back and have you on the show again. Oh, right on. No, I, I'd love to. Uh, I think this is great to get young filmmakers uh, exposed to a lot of... Uh, a lot of the wisdom that us old folks have. <laughs> Great. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure having you on the show, and, and you take care, my friend. All right. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Melody Lopez. Our theme music was composed by the irresistible Stephen D. Bennett. Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes.